The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. On today's show, we're going to revisit a topic that we've discussed a few times on the podcast now, um, and that's gender in the PR industry, in particular, um, the leadership gap, where women make up about 60 to 70% of the overall workforce and make up only about 30% of the leadership in, in the industry. And this is actually a stat that we're going to be revisiting in coming weeks, so stay tuned for that. Um, the two guests that we have on today's show come at gender politics from two slightly different points of view. The first guest is C- the CEO of Inkhouse Communications. Well, I should mention the CEO and founder of Inkhouse uh, Communications, and that's Beth Moynihan. And she's going to talk about why the agency model itself needs to be disrupted before gender parity can be achieved at the top. And she'll talk a little bit about some of the changes she's implemented at her own for- firm to help foster this. Then we'll bring back Barry Rafferty, global president at Ketchum, on the show. And of course, Barry's been on the show many times to talk about this this very subject. Um, on today's show, however, we'll focus on gender politics in, in the Trump era. And she'll also recall some of the key insights that she gleaned from Davos earlier this year. To set the stage, uh, I should mention that my conversation with Beth was recorded at a busy cafe in Emeryville. So there's a bit of background noise. So when you're listening to that part of the show, you're not imagining the blender in the background making smoothies. So on that note, let's jump into that conversation. So we are here in Emeryville at the Rudy's Can't Fail Cafe, which is apparently Pixar's hangout. Um, the Pixar's right across the street from us. Um, and I'm here with Beth Monahan, CEO of Ink House. Hi, Beth. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and you are normally based in Boston. I am, yes. I'm out on the West Coast for the week visiting our team out here. Nice, nice. And you have, how many people do you have in San Francisco now? 30. Oh my gosh. Yeah, we're moving yeah. into new space Monday morning. <laughs> very exciting, very exciting. Well, well, thank you for crossing the bridge and making the trek over to Emeryville to talk about gender and workplace um, practices and how that should be totally disrupted, which I know is sort of your perspective. Yes, two of my favorite topics, so thank you for uh, indulging me. <laughs> well, well, let's start with, with gender, because I know the PR Council recently started um, a campaign, I think they're calling it Shequality, and and I really love the, the tagline that they're going with, and that's um, that, when, that in PR, because as, as I think most of our listeners know, women are make up about 70% of the workforce, they make about 30% of the very, very top leadership positions, and um, so the, the, the tagline for this campaign is, Women lead the work. Now it's time for them to lead the way. And and I do. And that's the, that's the gap, right? I mean, women. You see them. They, they lead accounts. They they lead practices in many cases. But when you actually look at who's setting the vision for the agency, that's oftentimes male. It is. Um, and I'm a huge advocate for women's equality. I spend a lot of time in Massachusetts um, at the state house trying to get equal pay legislation and paid leave legislation passed. Um, but we're living in kind of a, we're inheriting this 1950s workplace that just was passed down to us um, and was very patriarchal, uh, patriarchal, and we need to change it because if public relations cannot do it, I'm not really sure which industry can. Yeah, no, and I and I want and, and by the way, there's I think they're blending or something. This is this is this is the the ambiance that our listeners are getting because we're 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 doing this podcast at a diner. Um, but but let, I want you to build on on the sort of 1950s workplace model and how that sort of extends to today. What 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 in particular do you think um, is sort of indicative of that? Yeah, the 1950s model it kind of created a workplace where. Um, the best workers logged their, their their value to the workplace by hours. So men in the 1950s were the ones who went to work. They killed themselves, they worked all the time, and their wives stayed at home and took care of the kids. Today, that is not reflective of the workforce. We have women who work, we have a huge percentage of women who are primary breadwinners for their families, 
And so we're still stuck, though, with this workplace of the 1950s. And so my suggestion is that the workplace needs to change. So is there anything in particular that you've implemented at Ink House to reflect that? Yeah. So I think that the PR agency model is very obviously broken. Um, when it comes to equality, it's broken. But nobody ever did anything because it's the right thing to do. I mean, but very few people have. And in business, we need to change the workplace because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's the right thing to do for business. And by the way, it is. So at Ink House, we're trying to change the PR agency model to shift it from who is available on email at 10 p.m. and trying to demonstrate their value by being chained to their email or chained to their desks to who has the great idea that's going to reinvent our industry. Because right now, we are in the midst of a vast change, driven primarily from the Trump presidency, where we have investigative journalism that's made a resurgence, we have alternative facts, um, we're calling it the post-truth era, and we are going to have to change, and we need people who are empowered to do that. So, and, and you actually have banned after-hours email, and, and I know because I actually did a story on this, and when I did it, I, the, the number of emails I got, and I don't think, Beth, that I shared this with you, um, the number of emails I got from people that are like, that's great in theory, but in practice, that's just, that's not practical. So, two-part question. Number one, why did you do it? And, and I think that was almost, was it over a year ago now, right? Yeah. 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 And, and so, how's it, you know, to all of those naysayers, how's it going? You know what they say, if you're, if you're not um, making somebody angry, you're doing something wrong. Um, but... The truth of the email ban is that it is just an example of how we need to create space between ourselves and our work. And sure, we need to do that for life and work balance, but we also need to do it more importantly for creativity. If you are sitting in front of your email all day long and all night long, I guarantee you're not going to have a good idea. You know, when I had my two children, I was forced to get some space from work because I had two children who needed me. But I realized something in that moment or those moments, was, which was that when I had a few hours away from work, I actually had better ideas at work. So we need to be able to find the mental space to be our most creative selves. And so the email ban is um, a guideline. If there's a big launch coming up tomorrow, of course we're going to be on email. Um, but it is a message to my staff that I want them to take the time required for them to come up with their best ideas. Okay, then I actually like the, I'm thinking of the, the example that you gave me yesterday, which I thought was really good um, when, we, when we spoke, which was you also don't want it to be the, the way that it, an employee can show you that they're a hard worker, that, you know, because you're right. I mean, the easiest way in our industry, and probably in any industry, right? Any industry, To, yeah. to show how what dedicated you are is to be on email at 10 o'clock at night or on Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon, right? Yeah. And so the, the problem with that model is this. It is an ask-for-permission model. And so if you have to demonstrate that you're online all the time, then you need my permission to be offline. You need my permission to go to lunch. You need my permission to come in late, to stay, to leave early. And if you need my permission to do all of those things that any normal adult should be able to make their own judgments about, then you're going to need my permission to come up with a really big idea that might just be the thing that changes our business for good. And I don't want anyone to be nervous about doing that. The other point that I think when you and I have chatted about this before is is yes, I mean, the, the, the person who's working 14-hour days, they potentially could be, they, they, they could just be totally dedicated, or they could be inefficient. They could be inefficient. Right, yeah. Yes, and so when you make the, the metric how hard you work, you're not rewarding the right stuff. And so the right stuff to reward are creative ideas that work. It's kind of like client work. You know, we could be in it in the service of just clips and press coverage, but what if it's the wrong press coverage? You know, when a client asks me, how should we measure PR? I tell them that we could measure it in a hundred ways. You can, I can give you every data point that's available to us, but does that really tell you if it's working? If you are meeting your business goals, it's working. And so it's the same thing when you look internally at your teams. Are you actually succeeding or are you just creating momentum and process? And we have a value, we have nine values at Ink House, but one of them is that we value progress over process. And I think that that is 
more important today than it ever has been. So let's go, let's look at uh, pay equality for a second, because I know that's a big, you're a big advocate for, for pay equality across um, men and women. And it seems like a big obstacle to that is negotiation. And it just seems like not only are women less likely to negotiate, but they're often penalized for doing so. And I know a lot of companies have sort of eliminated negotiation as part of the offer process, just, just to equalize the playing field. Yeah. Um, so that workers aren't, employees aren't rewarded for being good negotiators, but not necessarily good performers. Um, how do you deal with that at Ecos? Yeah. Um, this is a really important topic, and it, it goes hand in hand with this discussion about whether women should change themselves to fit into a biased workplace, or whether the workplace should change so that women can be successful. I'm going to argue the latter. And the pay equality legislation in Massachusetts does exactly that. So at Inkhouse, um, we have the way that we deal with equal pay is this we do not ask employees or um, interview candidates for their salary history. Um, by the way, that will be the law in Massachusetts in 2018. Nobody will be allowed to do that. Um, and the reason is that it perpetuates pay inequality. So if a woman was making less, and then we're going to predicate our current offer on what she was making before, then she's inherently going to make less again. So instead, we have salary ranges for each role, and depending on the level of experience, we go with whatever that is, and we don't ask how much they were making before. Do you encourage negotiation, or is that something that you... I don't encourage it. Um, I will say that men negotiate more than women, in my experience. Um, but I wouldn't say that that's a reason to encourage or, or to discourage it. I would say it is a reason to change the process so that it optimizes so that everyone wins. So in terms of um, you know empowering folks and, and not creating a culture of asking for permission, because I, I want to go, go back to that as well. Um, when you have junior level people, like what are the things that you do? I mean, part of it is you know you you don't ask people to to you, they don't need your permission to go have lunch or, or do yeah. those things. But I mean, it, do you think it's a series of those little kind of steps of confidence um, that yeah, that make people feel empowered to come up with big ideas? I do. Um, the best way it, it, this is all about confidence building. Whether you're a man or a woman or a minority, it's all about confidence building. And every single person is going to come to their confidence journey in a different way. Um, and in PR, we always have this um, gut reaction like, oh, we need to do it this way and this way and this way and this way because that is the way it has always been done. And when somebody comes to that model with a different way, we tend to beat them down um, instead of asking why and trying to learn from a new perspective. The best way to build someone's confidence is to find one thing that you think they're going to be good at and help them become successful at that and then find another. And those, those kind of build on one another over time and pretty soon they're confident enough to suggest something new. But if, we, um, if our strategy is to beat them down and tell them that they're wrong every single time, they're never going to suggest anything different than what we're already doing. Do you think part of that is the nature of, um, I mean, this is a competitive industry. Oh, it is. I mean, professional services is. And and there is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder if, man, if especially mid-level managers, always feel like it's in their best interest to to spend their, their time sort of growing their team versus it, versus it is, you know, focusing on, on themselves and, and getting getting yeah. their, their career ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both of those things are important, and there, there's a misperception that they're mutually exclusive. Um, because if the team who works for you is super successful, you are too, and it looks good for you. And I think we are living in an age where our egos take over too often, but we forget that like a rising tide actually does lift all ships on that team. And so when your team excels, you helped make that happen. So how much do you think the industry should be advocating for women to change um, their own behaviors or expectations around work? Um, you know, don't 
don't opt out of the big job because you assume you can't take the travel on. Um, go for it and then and then figure out a way to make it work, sort of lean in style. Or how much of it do you think the industry itself or the agency model and its um, criteria for promotions and for big jobs needs to change? I could answer this question a lot of ways, but I'm just going to go with the truth from how I see it. Um, it's 2017, and the Equal Rights Amendment is still not ratified. The way we have been doing it isn't working. We still make 79 cents for every man's dollar, and women in PR comprise 30% of the management goals. What is going on? There's an entire industry for women, written by women, telling us how we should change to fit in. And so I would suggest that if we focused all of that effort on changing the workplace instead, that the long-term benefits will be greater and maybe we will see actual change. Because if we have to change ourselves, and um, I read an article a number of years ago that suggested that women should um, become fans of sports. Oh, gosh. Um, network, which is good. We should network, for sure. But we should also decide on a uniform, uh, because that's what men do. So maybe we should all just wear straight dresses or something, and then we would fit in better. That feels like um, my soul might die. And it also feels like a strategy that's never going to work for the long run. So if we really want equality, the workplace has to change. And that means that we have to change a lot of ingrained behavior, whether it's intentional or unintentional or even not even realized by the people who are perpetuating it. Um, it has to change. And if women aren't willing to stand up and say something, who is? I wonder if some of this even goes further back, right, to how women are social. I mean, to, to how women are socialized, right? Because, because women are socialized to be nicer in the workplace yeah. and to not raise their hand as much. Um, and it, not to be as assertive with ideas. And even, I mean, and there are some of these little things that I think are helpful. I, I, I know uh, Barry Rafferty from Ketchum has been an advocate for the way that women tend to struct structure their emails and that they tend to over-explain and they tend to almost be seeking permission every time they send an email. Whereas it, it, one thing she had once said actually on, on a previous podcast is she she told some of the women in, at, at, at Ketchum to say, to look at, the emails that the senior men in the company were sending, and they were to the point. They and, and they didn't over-explain. And there are certain things that I think women are sort of socialized to do as they kind of grow up. Which is different yeah. than changing ourselves. So if it's something that we are doing because we're worried about society, and so we have to apologize to do it, yeah, we shouldn't do that. I also, though, caution against writing it like a man would. If we take negotiating and use that just as an example, it's not should women negotiate or not negotiate, or, or should women it's not should women negotiate like men. It's to a woman interviewing, if you think that you deserve more money, negotiate and do it your way. So it's about getting the courage to do the things we actually feel compelled to do, but society tells us not to do them. And so maybe that's adjusting our style, but what I actually think it is, is actually is advocating for what we feel we deserve, but are afraid to say. And so if we're gonna ask for it, don't ask like a man would ask. How would you ask? And let's do it that way. That's, so, and this, and this might be, this is sort of, and you've, you've probably been on the other end of this a lot, so maybe you've seen this. I mean, is there is there a different style that you've seen in terms of how men negotiate versus how women negotiate? Yeah, men just ask. Yeah. And they don't, they don't get nervous about it. And, um, you know, women are going to do it a different way, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I want, I want to hire the person I'm hiring. I want to see who they are and how they ask questions. I don't need them to ask like a man. I just need them to ask. What about this perception? And, and I still hear this, and I even heard this yesterday. I mean, I hear this every, uh, on a probably weekly basis still, right? Is that women don't necessarily want these big jobs? Um, they don't want, the, right? I mean, the, I mean, in, I mean, how often do you hear that, right? It's just um, that, I hear. I worked at a venture capital firm, and I thought that oh, maybe women just don't want to work in venture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And it's it's um, they 
they, they don't want the travel schedule. Um, they don't want to put it, the, the hours are too long. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm regularly in meetings where someone will say, so-and-so left, you know, oh, she probably, you know, she had young kids or something. And, and sometimes that person, I'll see them show up somewhere else. So it's not that they, you know, I mean, that may have been the reason that was given, yes, right? There is an enormous um, cultural expectation of women. And I often describe myself as somewhat of a zoo animal um, because I have two children and I run a business. And nobody can figure out why on earth I do what I do. And um, they admire it. And it's always a compliment. Like, oh, how do you, I don't know how you do that. But it's actually an insult. And we, as a culture, need to get over that. And women, I, I think that women need examples. So there's data that shows that the reason women opt out is not because they want to be with their children. I mean, yes, if you want to be with your children, God bless you. That is a worthy and noble job. It is a job. Um, it's a job that I pay someone a lot to do. <laughs> um, but the reason that women opt out of work is because they arrive and they look up and they don't see anyone who looks like them in the roles to which they should aspire. And so they lose their confidence. And it's not a conscious thing. There's a Bain study that said, shows that while women graduate from college with more ambition than men, after two years, women's confidence and ambition drop 60% and men stay the same. And that is because they see zero opportunity. And so unless we have other women like me, like Barry, um, showing them that it's possible, they don't think it's possible. How do you deal with, and, and, and I've asked this question so many times on this podcast, but it's always interesting to see what answer I get. It, you know, the, 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 the subconscious biases that, that exist, these, these microaggressions, I guess, is the, the best way to put them, that women face. And it's not overt. It's not, you know, no, yeah, right? Never. I mean, it, it's just really subtle things. Like when sometimes, you know, when, when a woman is pregnant or has, or has a child, this assumption that, oh, well, you know, I mean, she's not even offered the position, right, or the promotion, because the assumption is is that she probably doesn't want it. Um, yeah, so, so all of these, these subconscious, sub, unconscious, it's unconscious, unconscious, it's, yeah. unconscious these, these unconscious biases that people bring into the workplace. One study, I think, I, that I read was that men that have stay-at-home wives have a negative perception of women in the workplace, and they have this unconscious bias, perhaps, that the women don't really want to be there, that they probably want to be at home like their wives are. So, I I mean, that's what I think, that's the toughest battleground, because I think the overt sexism, it's, in some ways, it's it's so out there that you can deal with it, but the, it's those... No, and this is the hardest piece. Yeah. And we need more examples of women doing it. I think I told you that when I was interviewing for our um, SVP of account operations, I had a lot. I used a recruiter, and I got a lot of resumes, and they were all men because men are the types of people who hold those jobs right now. Even in PR, that's dominated by women, and I was underwhelmed by the presentations that I that I saw, um, it, in most of them, and some of them were good. But then I thought, wait, what am I doing? You know, because men are actually hired based on potential, and women are hired based on whether they've actually done that job before, and so. Even I felt like I had this, this unconscious bias, perhaps, where I wasn't thinking in the way that we need to start thinking. But I stopped myself and I thought, do I have someone who has the potential, who works for me, who could do this job? And I was like, I actually do. So I asked her to do a presentation. And she blew me away and I gave her the job. And by the way, she was pregnant when I gave her the job. So we need to prove that that's possible. And unless there are people who are willing to take a risk and prove that it's possible, she's back from maternity leave and I'm and she's doing the job I hired her to do and we're doing great. So we need more examples like that and people who are willing to just jolt themselves out of that and, and do something a little differently. Yeah, no, I, I love to hear stories like that. And just looking at the venture world, and, and this is public, we, we actually wrote about this a couple of years ago, but um, uh, Alicia Schreiber, who, and oh my goodness, I can't remember which um, venture partner she's with right now. Um, I will I will remember it and put it in the show notes. Um, or I'll, I'll link actually to the story that we did on this. Um, she was offered a job heading their marketing when she was pregnant. And, and, and she even said to them, um, 
you're gonna have to wait. Like, I mean, this is yep. this is what I plan to do, and this is when I plan to return. And and they did, and I thought that was really impressive for um, for a venture company to that do that. That is impressive, and yeah. it's rare. And you know, maternity leave is really short. Mm-hmm. You know, we can wait it out. That that I mean, that's exactly that. <laughs> if was, that it's was the right a, person, if it's the right person, what's the difference? Yeah. You might spend three months trying to find somebody. Right. Yep. No, ex- that's exactly what they, and they said that we, we, they wanted her yep. and they were willing to wait an extra five months or whatever it was that they needed to do. Yeah. And by the way, even if it's a person who works for you, you know, to replace an employee on average costs 150% of their salary. And what is that compared to waiting a couple of months? I mean, what do you say to, to firms, especially smaller firms, they're taking that into account, those numbers yeah. into account, when they say, well, you know, we really want to do a leave policy, but we can't. Um, we, we can't afford to. Well, um, there are lots of ways to afford it. And I think that the costs need to go beyond the short-term pain when you evaluate the total. So I said it's 150% of someone's salary to replace them. And if you actually thought about that, that costs a lot more than funding maternity leave and keeping that good person. Um, you also need to think about um, in, like loyalty, employee loyalty. I don't have the numbers on this, but I can't tell you how many people come to Inkhouse and say they chose us because they see that we, we support working families. And by the way, we offer um, paternity leave to men. Um, and our retention rate for employees is 10, it, our, our um, attrition rate for employees is 10%. I think the industry is 21%. Yeah, it is, it is. And so it's a question not of maternity leave or paternity leave or any of that. It is a question of how do you value your people? Do you value your people? And if you are in a, a services business, as every PR firm is, your people are your service. And if you don't value your people, your service is gonna is gonna suffer. Yeah, I actually had a, a agency CEO tell me once, um, female, that um, those first three years are are really really tough. Um, when especially when with the first, right? When when someone's trying to balance having a very very young child um, with work, and she said that what she has learned is if you if you make accommodations, especially for star players who you know. Who know are good performers, that their loyalty to you after those, if you just sort of make make those three years, don't don't make their life like a living like no, nightmare. No, I mean, it's awful. Yeah. We had a woman yeah. um, when I, I testified at the state house in Massachusetts about paid leave, for which, by the way, there goes some silverware. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, when I testified at the state house in Massachusetts, I was the only business to testify in favor of it. Wow, and. I just gave you all the data about why I think it's good for business to have paid leave. And as states actually implement programs, it yeah. will become more cost-efficient for, um, for employers. But at the time, I had a woman who um, took the job with me and got pregnant with twins and ended up with this really radical medical condition that prevented her from being able to eat. And she had to be fed through an IV on bed rest in the hospital for eight weeks. And then she had to have twins. And so am I going to be the kind of employer who says, oh, sorry, i got to go hire somebody else, when you are at the moment of where your life is at risk, your children's lives are at risk, and so if the business does not value the person, why would the person value the business? And so if we are human beings and wanting to run a valuable business, we treat them well. So, you know, when you say you were the only business that was supportive, um, paid leave, I wondered, I mean, have you talked to other to, to, to your peers to other agencies Were, did you talk I to others I think that the agency world generally is pretty good about it I mean I, I haven't done an analysis of it but I think the agency world is good about it um, paid leave gets trickier when you're a small business or a restaurant um, where you just you need people to show up um, but the problem by the way is that lots of restaurant workers simply lose their jobs when they have babies and um, that's really scary I know. So our system, right? It's like the only one, the only, because I actually did do an analysis on this a few years ago, and actually I'm working on, a, on an update to it, because H&K Strategies, they, they sort of led the industry with a four-month um, paid leave for, for birth mothers. That's great. And I believe it was three months for partners, 
Um, so it was on par with what, I mean, because being out here in Silicon Valley, that's it's pretty standard for to do four months. In fact, a lot of places now do four months for parental leave in Silicon Valley. They do. And yeah. Google found um, through its leave program, when they increased, I, I, I may have this wrong, but I don't think I do. When they increased maternity leave from 12 to 16 weeks, yep. mm-hmm. they increased the rate at which women came back to right, work by 50%. Right. They did. They did. Which is a big deal. Yeah. And I mean, and that's actually, I think Google and Facebook were, were the first and I, I want to credit Sheryl Sandberg for that because I think yeah. she was I think she was a proponent no, she for was. that. She was. Yes. Yeah, because I think what she's always said is that you should have parental leave because that way, as a family, you don't get in the habit of having the wife do everything. So this is important, and that's why we offer paternity leave. You know, when it's just maternity leave, at the very earliest stages of parenthood, it places the onus on the woman and not on the family, and so that is a cultural shift that we have to make. And if you look at other countries, um, they're leaps and bounds ahead of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and, and I think that was a really good point that she made in Lean In is that if women have to share the load if they want to succeed, and I, and I think you alluded to this earlier when you get that dreaded, terrible question: is how do you do it all? Right. I mean, the answer for most women is they don't. Right. I mean, right. most women that are successful. No, yes, I don't do it all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. They, yeah, they don't do it all. They have a lot. What you know, they, whether they hire help, whether they yeah. have really supportive spouses, whether yeah. they, they have stay-at-home spouses, or even working spouses, but they just share the load. Yeah. And I think that's what was it she said? It is, in, that is the thing. Yeah. You cannot do it all. Yeah. Nor should you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should live the life that you dream of living, and do the things that fill you up, and find a way to divide and conquer the rest. Yeah, yeah. Like, we have one life. Mm-hmm. We, what do we have to lose except everything? <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I, I think that was, um, I, well, I think her quote was something like, the, the, the biggest influence on how successful you'll be is who you marry. And I, and I, and I think there's really some, some truth to that for well, women. Well, you, you need a partner yeah. um, who's willing to be a 50-50 partner. Mm-hmm. And when people who shall remain nameless, say, oh, is your husband babysitting the kids tonight? I say, no, he's actually parenting them. (laughs) And that's what he thinks he's doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, (laughs) yes. So one last thing that we've sort of danced around is is even even if you have a totally supportive spouse, I mean, there is an emotional toll that women face that men don't face in questions like, I mean, if you have a stay-at-home friend, she'll say things like, oh, you know, gosh, it must be so hard to be away from your kids all day. Or, or, um... I mean, I mean, all of again. I mean, and things that I, you talk to men and, and their male friends who are fathers don't say things like, "Man, it must be," you know, you don't at the same rate anyway. Um, that I think, and so women sort of I think carry this sort of even emotional baggage around around it. That even if they have everything else figured out from like a logistical standpoint and the load is shared, they we do. St- yeah. It's really hard, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of pressure to feel guilty. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and you constantly feel like you need to be apologizing. You constantly feel like you need to be apologizing. So Diane Hessen, who founded the company Community Space, it's now called C-Space, um, a co- earlier on when I started Ink House, um, I sought her out and I was like, Diane, I don't. this is awful. And she said, she gave me some really good advice. And she said, um, you should never apologize to your kids for going away on a business trip. She said, you should tell them that you will miss them. You should tell them that you'll call them and talk to them, but you should tell them what you get to do. Because what you really want is for them to aspire to do the same thing. And she gave me permission to stop feeling guilty, and sure, I miss my kids and I feel guilty, but um, I'm living the life that I want to live, and everybody should have that privilege. Every single person should have that privilege. So I would say that if you feel like you want to do something and our world is making you feel guilty about it. You should just tweet at me on Twitter, and I'll I'll give you some uh, encouragement because you're working and fulfilling your dreams. You're doing something right. Well, Beth, this was this was a great conversation and one that I mean I, I revisited this topic on this on the podcast several several times because this is something that our industry, given the demographics of our industry, is something that we need to keep talking about on well, a regular I mean, basis. If we as a PR industry comprised by 70 or 80 percent women aren't advocating for the majority of our workplace and creating a workplace in which they can succeed, who are we? Very well said. Thank you, Beth. So our listeners may have noticed that my voice sounds more hoarse than it did at the beginning of that conversation, and that is because um, 
we had to record this portion, this transition, separately. So pardon my hoarseness. But now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the same issue, but from a slightly different perspective with Barry Rafferty, who is global president of Ketchum and who's, of course, been a guest on this podcast many times. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, welcome back, I should say. Um, you, this is, I think, the third time that you and I have had conversations and um, they, they've tended to revolve around sort of gender um, and, and women in leadership in, in our industry. And so I think we're going to continue that, that theme again today. Wonderful. It certainly seems to be one that's not going away. Yes, yes. Although it has changed significantly since the last time we spoke. And one of the things I wanted to sort of first get your thoughts on is sort of the, the aftermath of sort of Hillary Clinton's defeat in, of course, November of last year and what sort of impact that's had on, on either, you know, ambition from what you've seen sort of your women um, you know, on, on your team or, you know, at Ketchum. Um, or just even even more broadly in terms of how women in leadership, um, like how, how we think about that, because in some ways it seems like it doesn't seem like we were back at, you know, at status quo. It almost seems like we've we've rolled back farther than that. Well, I think the election had an impact on everyone, whether you were pro Clinton or pro Trump, right? The being a female during that election and the impact of how the candidates were judged differently. I mean, so many people said, right, if it was a woman who had the issues and things that Trump had, she would have never even made it that far. So just the, the playing field and how women and men are judged differently was more clear than ever before. I think that so many senior women were fairly devastated that such an accomplished woman person, truthfully, did not win and what the implications of that meant has done a few things. One is I think it's really rallied a lot of women to think differently. Should women run for office? We don't run for office enough. We don't put ourselves out there. Should women fight harder, right, for their rights? You're seeing the rallies and people coming forth and I think being truthfully more outspoken about things, particularly the younger generation than they ever thought they had to be. I know for myself, I thought many of these things, right, the right to abortion and a woman's body, my mother fought that fight. I thought, great, that was done. And I think what people are realizing is these things are not done and there's a big shift in society and we have to become more active around the causes and the things that we believe in. So I'm curious about um, sort of what you said about you know, the playing field is, is seems to be quite different for, for women and men, certainly in the political sphere. But I would think that some of that translates to the corporate world. And I'm wondering if you've had conversations with women, and I'm sure you've had these conversations before the election, but I wonder if you've had, um, I wonder what they're like now after the election, where, where, you know, have women come to you and said, look, I, I want to I want to be promoted. I want the big job, but I do feel like the standards for me are going to be different, not only to to get the job, but once I have it to to maintain it. I think that the standards are different. I mean, there is proof and we see it in the workplace in terms of the bias that exists. We see the numbers, despite the fact that we know there's a business case that if more women are in higher ranking positions, that companies do better we don't see those numbers going forward at all. In fact, you know, Sheryl Sandberg has talked about the fact that it's basically stalled in the last 12 years. There's been no movement. Um, women lead 13 countries and represent less than 6% of people running Fortune 500 companies. So when you go to the top levels, it's not changing. When you go to the next tier of companies, you are seeing an increase in some fields and some professions. But it's not to the extent that you would think it would be. We certainly hear a lot about technology, right? The numbers being so low and we work with a lot of companies in technology, but truthfully, even in our own field, I think we're seeing women come up the ranks in public relations at higher levels, but we're still not seeing the biggest firms run by women. We're still not seeing that huge increase or shift that you might have anticipated a decade ago. Right. And I, and I wonder is as more and more women sort of see the fact that they are, will be judged differently 
against their male counterparts if that leads to to more female attrition you know more more women saying you know what I, I'm not going to play the big the big corporate agency game um, you know I'll start my own firm as you know as, as you know there's there's a plethora of, of boutiques that are that are that are run by women um, I mean I, I mean do you do you find that you know as more and more women sort of realize that they the, the standards for them are just different that they're starting to say you know what maybe this isn't for me maybe there's a different a different path I think most women opt for something different, not so much around the standards, but around their personal needs, right? Their need for flexibility, their need, you know, as a parent, parenting children, having elder, you know, adults that they're taking care of and things that the pull and demands on women, I think, are what often forces them to opt in to become a freelancer consultant to start their own thing. But I do think that there is frustration as well. I just think it's less documented on the fact that if I can't get to this level and have some of the things I need, I need to find a different path. Right. And I, and I would think or I would hope that increasingly um, those demands are not exclusive to women. I know, you know, I'm based out here in San Francisco, and, and we've seen a, a definite pull towards parental leave instead of maternity leave, where um, both the, you know, the, the mother and the father, um, or the, you know, the birth parent, you know, the, the birth parent and the partner, um, both get equal amounts of, of leave, um, so that the expectation isn't just that all of, all of the work should fall on the mother, um, it seems to be spread across both genders. Um, I mean, I mean, that should, I would think, help alleviate some of this um, sort of push and pull on women. I, I do think you're seeing, you know, millennial parents sharing things a little bit more, right? You're seeing men, I know most people would say, you know, my father never changed diapers, my husband does, I expect my son to do even more, right? But what's also interesting is that the data is still showing that women take the majority of responsibility. If you look at data around when a child is sick, depending on the jobs that the male or female has, females still tend to be the one to take off, right, to take them to the doctor or to make sure they get to an activity. So despite the fact that I think you see parental leave and things like that being a little bit more equitable and shared and like I know even in the UK now, if the woman doesn't take all her time, the male spouse can take some of that time, right? There's a lot of things that are shifting, which is great. The question is, does it shift over the full life cycle of parenting and of responsibility for parents and other things? And the second case you're seeing is that the divorce rate is incredibly high. And so single moms, single dads, you know, is also shifting some of that mix as people share child duties and split things. So that's helping in some respects, but it also puts more pressure, particularly on those single moms that are increasing and in raising kids alone. So let's let's go back to the sort of the aftermath of the election and kind of what that's meant for kind of bringing women into leadership. And I wonder, because I know, Barry, you've been sort of an advocate for women in leadership for quite some time. Do you feel like, do you feel like now, I mean, there's a sense that these initiatives need to be even more aggressive and they need to um, work even harder to, to bring women in and keep women in leadership positions? Or, and I, and I hope this isn't the case, but I don't know, is there a sense of, you know what, maybe the public app, you know, there, there just, there isn't as strong of an appetite for this as we thought. Do we need to keep our heads down a little bit? Um, I mean, you know, we look at, I mean, we, we, I think there's what, two women in the cabinet um, in the White House right now. Um, it, it just it just seems and, and, and you don't hear the same outrage that I feel like you would have heard about that, you know, maybe, you know, even two years ago. Um, we shouldn't give up. Number one, I will say that I think that the need to get more men involved as well as women in the fight is really important. I think one of the shifts I've seen in the last few years even at Davos and other places, is there's more men speaking out on the topic. There's more men speaking out about the issues around pay equity, about looking at succession and in companies, about including more women on boards. So I think, to me, we've got to continue to advocate strongly for ourselves, and we also have to bring more people into this initiative. But the fact that it's stalling, what it says to me is that there's a lot more that we can do. There's a lot more that we can do in our agencies, with our clients, 
helping them really understand the business benefits of this and really making sure also that we help women step up confidently to put themselves in positions where they're considered for those jobs, to put themselves out there and go for the elections and the cabinet positions and the other things is, um, you know, we have to be willing to fail in order to succeed. Do you, that's a good point. Um, Do you think that there needs to be more research sort of really reinforcing the business benefit of having diversity um, in an organization's leadership? Um, Because I mean, I I know there's been, you know, there's been studies, I know Harvard Business um, Review's done done some really interesting stories on this, but but I don't know, it, 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 it just doesn't seem like it's resonated at the same level that, that one would expect. Um, because if you look at a lot of leadership teams, they, they're still largely male. Um, I think studies, research, case studies are always help, right? I mean, they, they should help make the case. Um, but as you say, we're not seeing as much progress in that. And I think a lot of the same, same statistics are being used over and over. So the more new things we can come up with, the better. But I also think that we have to get rid of this unconscious bias. And I think that men still often pick people in their likeness, right? They pick people because they think, okay, well, if women have small kids, they might not be willing to travel as much after I just told you my travel schedule, which is so crazy. They think that you know, if women have, you know, X, Y, and Z, they might not be willing to go negotiate this in the same way or to put in the same time as a creative director. So I think that we have to really get past our own bias as women and unconscious bias as men. And that is really, really difficult. We've done recently training in the agency um, on unconscious bias, and we did it with our global leadership team. And every one of us brought biases that we were surprised even, right? Like things come out and you're like, oh, I can't believe I thought that because you read like blind interviews and you do things and then you see photos and you make certain decisions based on how people look or about their education or different things. And it's really fascinating, but we're raised that way. And it takes a long time to shift those cycles. How much of it do you think, is there, is there a social component to it as well? And I say this because I, earlier today I was sitting in the, in the, in the Four Seasons Lounge and I was sort of observing that there were a lot of groups of men together and, and, and they, and they, they seem to have a really specific kind of social banter and style and and I and, and then it just kind of made me wonder. And again, I just sort of this kind of yeah. came up um, as I was looking around. And I mean, is there a component of, of, you know, maybe men selecting men because they 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 share a similar sort of style of conversation or a sense of humor that maybe doesn't jive as well with you know, if, if you bring sort of a woman into the fold? I mean, how much do you think there is a cultural social element to this? I think there is a huge cultural social element. I think that, you know, I often say to women, like, you have to be willing to go out and hang with the boys. Sometimes you have to be a little less sensitive and kind of let some of that stuff pass. Because I think if you don't mix with them well and you don't figure out ways to engage in the conversation and relax with them as well as do business with them, you can ostracize yourself, right? And people want to hang with people that they like. And we work a crazy amount, particularly in the U.S. society. So I do think that's part of it. I also think, you know, we all, you pick friends, right? You pick people to hang out based on certain things. So guys like to talk about sports, right? They like to talk about certain things. And sometimes that might not be your first choice. But, you know, glancing at the sports pages when you know you're going to be hanging out with a group of five guys for an evening or dinner, at least some ways you can contribute to the conversation. And so I do think for better or for worse, sometimes we have to work harder. And I know it's easier sometimes when I'm in a group of women versus a group of men, right, to keep that going and that dialogue going. But you kind of learn to be part of that. And it, it is something that's trained and I've had to work at it personally. So, you were at Davos earlier this year in January, and one of the, the stats you had mentioned, I think, was that last year um, there were, I think, 18% of the attendees were female, and, and this year that number has stayed relatively static. Um, I think it's up to 20% this year. And I'm curious sort of what the goal, goal is and what do you think the obstacles are 
um, to, to having more more women attend. Yeah, I mean, you know, Davos is tough because it is the senior most executives in any company, political, nonprofits, and um, you know, even at twenty percent, um, you know, you feel like you're in the minority because you are. Um, what's the most depressing to me at Davos right now is so many of the stats that are going backwards. You know, last year, the World Economic Forum put out a report that said it would take 118 years to reach pay equity. And now it went up to 170 years. Um, you know, we're sliding backwards on so many of these things. I think when you look at now, you know, the jobs that are being taken by artificial intelligence and other areas that we hadn't even thought about, they're taking more female-oriented jobs. Also, women aren't opting in to some of the new areas of engineering and science and math and, um, you know, the building of infrastructure, things like that that are happening in a lot of these countries. So you're seeing the shift and the divide grow even more. So to me, it's not only about Davos and the leadership there and what's happening, but it really starts even with young children and how we educate them, how we help them opt in to the science and math categories, how we encourage them to do things differently and to get rid of the stereotypes and things like that really early on in school. At Davos, I believe there was some research that was presented that illustrated the power of blind hiring in which the gender or the race of the candidate was cloaked. Can you talk a little bit about that? So there's a woman named Iris Bonet that's a professor of public policy at Harvard University. She actually moderated a panel last year I was on, on kind of breaking gender bias. And she really, I find interesting in terms of how she speaks about how data helps take the bias out of the hiring system. You know, she talks about we spend millions a year going after people's minds after this gender bias. But the truth is, we have to really level the playing field. So what she gives an example of, and it's my favorite example because it's a really easy one to do, is that basically um, when you're doing blind auditions, so think about this, you're doing a music audition for a big orchestra. And when they put a screen up, okay, and they had men and women behind the screen where those picking the new musicians could not see if it was male or female. The number of women picked went from 5% to 40% of the orchestra. 5 to 40. So when you used your ears and not your sight to pick musicians for a major orchestra. So to me, what this says is that we have to find ways, right, to eliminate some of that bias in the application process. I think I've mentioned to you before, you know, in our first round for our summer fellows, we do something called Launchpad, which is a gamification process where people create icons and they compete on a strategy session and they vote each other up. And we actually interview at least, and we do it, it's only the first phase of our process and then we do an interview phase, but we try to do it to get at least a different kind of bias out of our own system because we know people pick people like them that went to colleges like them that were in their sorority. So we try and eliminate those things in the first round. But it's clear when you look at things like what Iris brings forth with the orchestra that we all bring that bias to any audition. So it seems like at that first level, especially when you're dealing with sort of entry level, um, it, it seems more obvious sort of how, how you can do that. But when you're dealing with people who are much more established in their careers, when you're looking at internal promotions, um, it seems like it would be much more challenging to, to sort of take this, this blind approach. Well, I think you are seeing um, companies that are starting to, at least even at the senior levels for the first rounds, looking at resumes more blindly via sex and things like that. So they may take the names off, um, do things by experience and accomplishments only, um, you know, not putting universities or backgrounds. So you are seeing some screening techniques where at least at all levels, you can get rid of some of that bias. The other thing too, as you say, is within people in companies is I think having the discussion 
making sure that your succession plans include men and women and that you're having the discussion about those people through the same lens. Are you judging them in the same way? And I think it's going to be up to our executives and our HR people to really uncover some of those things as we have those discussions and understand why people are making certain choices and help them to try and eliminate some of that in the decision-making process. So on, on that note about sort of polarization, um, you know, at the we just had an innovation summit in Chicago a few weeks ago. And one thing that came up was how everything that a brand does is seen as political now, whether intentional or not. And not only is it seen as political, but it's can, consumers see it through sort of their own political lens, right? So, you know, they'll see something as being favorable to their point of view or not and make buying decisions based on that. So in the aftermath of the election, I mean, do, are you finding that brands are more cautious about putting forth message, messages that could be, you know, taken as political or have they accepted the fact that we live in a world in which things are likely to be seen in that way? You know, I, I think there's different kinds of leaders and different kinds of companies right now. And I think we're trying to work closely with our clients to do what they're comfortable with, right? Some of the Silicon Valley and tech companies we've seen have been much more willing, right, to take a stance on immigration or to go further. And other companies realize they might be, you know, a coastal company, but their majority of their workers, their factory workers might be in the Midwest in rural areas and they're having to make different decisions. So I think right now companies have to really put it through a more thoughtful lens and we have to help them understand, right, the values of their employees, who's buying their products and think about if they take a stance on something personally or as a corporation, what that outcome will mean. And you're seeing a lot of, you know, CEOs even try and separate themselves sometimes right from their company and take a public position saying it's a personal position. And some of that's backfired a little bit because of the status and the close association with that company. So to me, as communicators, it's really important for us to help them understand the lenses by which they're going to be judged and viewed and to understand if they do take a stance on something, what the implications could be, what the backlash could be, or what the positive impact could be as well. And with anything, right, you're going to have to weigh those two things and then decide how far your stance is, how neutral or positive or negative you go, and what you do in each situation. We are indeed living in some highly polarized times. And, you know, I've seen the way that Americans have been divided um, range from, you know, um, edu education level to, um, you know, the part of the country that you're living in, or, you know, rural versus urban. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how brands should or can communicate to the general public at a time when, when everything does feel so divisive. Well, first of all, I would be careful about dividing from urban to rural because I am looking out my window at Manhattan and I would say within Manhattan, you are going to have polarizing points of view. And it could be on the Upper East Side, apartment by apartment, and it could be in different neighborhoods as well. So I think we have to be really careful. What I came out of this thinking is there's polarizing points of view everywhere. Some are more extreme than others, right? But I can guarantee, you know, in my circle, even in Connecticut, right, a lot of people voted Republican and Democrat, and we had a lot of candid debates that truthfully we never had before. So I think that's important place to start. I think as we look at company values, it's easier if companies are true and have very clear established values and things that they stand for. And I think that helps as a starting point. So are you clear about what you want to stand for as a company or as a brand? And, you know, have you revisited that and continue to revisit that over time? But I also think right now, as you say, you know, the opinions are polarizing. And if you're a mass brand today, it becomes harder to take a stance because you don't want to offend anyone and you want to take a little bit middle ground. But the question is, and particularly with millennials and the younger generations, if you don't take a stance, will they value you as a company and as products? So I think companies are in a really tough place right now trying to sort this out. 
I think that over time we're going to see, um, you know, companies start to, in my mind, take less of a stance, which worries me. Um, because I think that with many that have poked their heads out, right, they've gotten a little pushed back. So I think we have to think about what does that look like. Now, I'll give you an example, like our Procter & Gamble client on women's equity has taken a stance and said, look, you know, we are going to help go against social norms and gender stereotyping. And one of the things that we want to look at is branded campaigns, right? So whether it's always like a girl or Ariel share the load, we can go out against you know, making gender and switching roles. And that's something that they feel like is going to be positive across different generations, across different countries. So part of it, too, is finding things that you can take a stance on that might not be as polarizing. But it's but it's also sort of amazing sort of, you know, what's what's considered polarizing now. I mean, I think it was was it the Audi ad at the Super Bowl? Um, yeah, yeah, and and the the backlash that I, that we saw, which I I was amazing to me that this idea about you know female empowering girls, um, similar to to what like a girl did, um, you know, suddenly had had blowback. Right, and I will say, my daughter and I watched that ad, and she's seventeen, and we both loved it. It was one of our favorites, but. I think what you have to look at through the eyes of Audi, and I, it's not a client and I don't know their stance, we do work for some other car companies, is that you know, what my gut is, they're looking at is more women are making car buying decisions, right? It's more 50-50 today. So who is buying an Audi, right? You talked a little bit about you know, within that population of those that are more likely to buy Audis, right? They're probably of a certain um, demographic in terms of a certain income, 50-50 male-female, if that group is positive toward them, and I don't know if they've seen an increase or not, then that still might have been the right thing to do despite some of the backlash. On one hand, it seems like there are consumers out there that would reward and prefer that their brand take um, take a stance on social issues and, 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 and seek out brands that they feel um, align with their values. On the other hand, I can see there is probably a lot of consumers who would prefer that their brands stay out of the political conversations or even social issues. Um, do you think there's, where do you think there's more benefit for a brand? Well, I think, you know, the question is right now, right, depending on your brand, if you're a niche brand, you have the ability to go further because you really understand your target and you really understand you know, their psychographics, their demographics, and you can dig in and go there. If you're a mass brand and you're trying to sell to a mass audience today, you have to be more cautious. And I think that's going to be the balance, right? So you're seeing some companies who are more comfortable because of the fact that they are really in tune with their target customer. But that's going to be, I think, the case is you have to have a lot of research, a lot of data. You have to understand the potential implications. But if I had to bet, Artie, and we can get back together next year at the Super Bowl, I think, right, ads this year definitely pushed the envelope a little, right, went out there a little bit more. If I go to next year's Super Bowl, I'm betting you're not going to see the same thing. Oh, wow. That's actually, I mean, I mean yeah, I, I'm feeling really mixed about that because on, on one hand, it seems like brands and sort of corporate America have sort of taken taken the flag, um, you know, in, in, in promoting things like, you know, diversity makes our culture, our society better. It makes for a stronger workforce. Um, and if they were to scale back on that, it's like, well, where would that voice be? Um, but yeah, well, I guess we'll see what how the, the next 12 months play out. Um, so so here's, here's a question for you that we can maybe end on is, given the lessons learned from, from the from the 2016 elections, presidential elections, what do you think it will take just to have a woman um, make it to, to the White House? Hmm. Um, you know, it's a tough question because I think that so many of us feel that there are qualified candidates that should be elected, right? But I think that part of this is about how you run a campaign who's in the mix of that campaign, right? I mean, I don't think even on the Republican side, we would have thought Trump would have been the front runner 
and this election. So the hard part about elections and candidates and the presidential election in particular is there's so many factors, factors about what's happening in the world, um, our place in the world in the United States, right, from a peace versus war and, you know, how people are feeling threatened right now in terms of that's huge. Immigration was a huge issue, social issues and economic issues, right? So to me, it's a little bit less about the candidate themselves, because I think we're going to see some really qualified candidates, but it is how the candidates, their positioning, their confidence, their authority, their ability for people to trust them fits into the society at large and what's going on during those times. And I think for whatever reason, you can call it bias, you can call it whatever you want, is we still as a country feel more confident with a male leader navigating us in the world. And we saw in America just so much of the rise of that sentiment um, from female voters and from male voters this time that I think it's really hard to predict. I wish I could because I could help the next person get elected. But I, I'm not sure right now that if I had to go ahead four years from now and say who should run and what platform they should run on and what could happen, I think so much of it is going to depend on that moment in time. Wow. Well, that's definitely something worth thinking about. Well, you know, it's always great having you on the show, Barry, and I'm sure that we'll have you back at some point soon. But for now, that's all the time that we have. I would like to once again thank our guests, Beth Moynihan and Barry Rafferty, as well as our production team over at Marketeers. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, which is the tech PR for March Communications, who also produce the fantastic podcast Hacks and Flax, which we syndicate on the Homes Report. So check it out if you haven't already. And we will be back soon with another episode. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.